0: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, this is Simon Brew, an editor of Film Stories magazine, and a very warm welcome to the latest Film Stories podcast. And I utterly swear to you, this is a podcast 100% about the movies. God. Come with me, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that had stories. That the story just sucks, a man. This is just the beginning. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello, and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, that's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The name of the podcast, though, well, it's given away in the title. I'm here to talk of the stories of films, and I tend to talk about development stories, production stories, marketing stories, release stories. All those ingredients, really, that go towards making the films that we know and sometimes love. Just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to cover on this podcast, they lean more towards the mainstream than anything else. They're films I'm interested in or invested in to some degree. I try not to do snark. I try not to punch down. I am celebrating the movies here. And this podcast is also a real appreciation of just how difficult it is to get a film made. All that preamble, I've got a corking pair of films for you in this particular episode. I'm going to start back in 2011. Let me play you a quick clip from the trailer and I'll come to the story of our first film. The other side of this. We're good to go. I thought we might start by canvas in the neighborhood. You, you lost me at we. We. You and I. It's my day off. <laughs> How do, you doing, man? You don't speak any English, huh? And these people out here. Is a Gaelic speaking region. They not teach you that with language. the agency. No, my husband is missing. I just slip into something a a little less comfortable. You cross me on this and you're finished. There are men behind the men. You certainly are an unconventional police officer, Sergeant Boyd. Thank you. That was not meant as a compliment. And that was a clip from the trailer for The Wonderful, The Guard, written and directed by John Michael Madonna, starring Brendan Gleeson, Don Cheadle, Mark Strong, Liam Cunningham. And, well, the story of The Guard goes back to, well, let's go all the way back to the early 2000s, when John Michael Madonna was making inroads into the world of filmmaking. At that stage, he'd written and directed a short film called The Second Death that his brother had executive produced. His brother being Martin Madonna, the writer-director of films such as In Bruges and The Banshees of Inner Sherim. But at this stage, I mean, both were very much in the infancy, certainly of their film career. But John Michael Madonna, he'd made this short film and then he got what appeared to be a really smart feature film break. Because while out and about in London, he'd spotted a book by author called Robert Drew called Our Sunshine. And he really liked the book and he put it forward to a producer by the name of Nelson Was to option it for the screen. Now, Was duly did that and Madonna was hired to write the script. And he put together a screenplay based on the book that had a bit of a touch of Terence Malick about it, according to reports. But at this stage, Madonna hadn't directed a feature film and he wasn't really a candidate for the director's chair. Now, instead, a man called Gregor Jordan, who'd made The Excellent Buffalo Soldiers, a film that Madonna was perfectly happy with as well, landed the job. But that was really about as good as things got on that particular project, because as Madonna told the Australian outlet SBS, there was a difference between Gregor Jordan and himself. And in his words, he said he thought it should be a bad film and I thought it should be a good one Uh, that SBS added in its report. A remark that didn't sound entirely flippant, because the thing is, the film would uh, would morph into the movie Ned Kelly. And this was a project that went wrong and went wrong quickly. That it soon became clear that what Madonna had seen in that original novel on which Ned Kelly was based was not what Gregor Jordan was seeing. And so John Michael Madonna, he I mean, he left the production fairly early. He would say that he'd only spent in the end 45 minutes on the set of the film and got to the point where he was so dissatisfied with the way it was going that he looked I mean explored the idea at least in his head of taking his name off the credits now the reason he didn't do so was he was effectively a first time filmmaker he's very very early in his career would he get would he get some pushback would he be labeled as trouble if he took his name off the credits of the film because audiences wouldn't know but you can bet your bottom dollar that everyone in the industry would And so, I mean, the film came out and didn't do a great deal of anything, really. But it had left John Michael Madonna's head in a slightly different place because he explained it to The Guardian. I mean, he'd often said in interviews that the script that he wrote next was one that was written out of uh, out of frustration. Uh, As he would tell The Guardian, it was born of, quote, rage, bitterness and contempt after his intended debut. This is quoting The Guardian article again, was scuppered by a star, he says, couldn't. that says clucking couldn't clucking act and so he kind of learned from what he'd gone through and he used that to fuel what he was going to do next so the spark was really lit to his next project and he also gave himself a bit of cover by setting up his own production company along with a man called Chris Clark called Reprisal Films and so he said of Ned Kelly I walked away from it realizing it's wrong to go into a film thinking these directors know more than I do I figured I could do better than that. And I wrote a low budget film and attached myself as the director. And he argued there's a mythic element about some films and auteurs. It's not true. I mean, he hadn't directed a film uh, at this point. But it takes the story back to where we started, to that short movie, The Second Death. Now that had starred Liam Cunningham and David Wilmot and a key character in the second death was an Irish police officer. And that was the character he was looking to explore further in his next feature script. And so what he did was basically he wrote the film that he wanted to make. He mixed in a bit of Western. He subverted the Buddy Cop movie as well. And he had a script coming together that, yeah, there was something to this. Now, alongside uh, while while he was hard at work putting all that put, putting all those pieces together, Martin Madonna was filming his uh, his feature directorial debut in Bruges, and it was on the set of there that John Michael Madonna met one of the co-stars of In Bruges, a man called Brendan Gleeson. Now, this would open the door to Gleason taking on uh, the lead role in The Guard. In fact, well, the title role in The Guard. And I asked Gleason about it once and he just said, I knew about some of John Michael Madonna's stuff before. But the next thing was this script kind of came and I knew once I read it that this was it and that 's what John Michael Madonna told me as well in a separate uh, a separate chat I had with him that he put the script out there, and they got a really big response now He did make the point that a lot of the companies who were interested in bidding for it weren 't spotting the nuances of the screenplay they were just seeing it primarily as a broad comedy but that didn 't really bother this particular writer director as long as he got the, as long as he got the funding to make the film and was able to do it his way. And he explained that people were interested before we even got Brendan Gleeson and eventually Don Cheadle attached. But when they were attached, it just got bumped up a level. He said, we got two or three really serious offers, so we had plenty of choice when raising the money. And Madonna quickly realised, like the privileged position really, he was in. Because as he argued, no one deserves to get a film made. But when you've seen other really bad films being made in Britain... Uh, he told me, it really starts to annoy you, the same sort of film, one after another, and they're not very good. And you think, how did they get funded? Where did they get the money from for those types of movies? And so of the genesis of The Guard, he said, yeah, that's where it all came from. And he said, it's funny, in a film where you'd think that a character's so outrageous and so obnoxious, sometimes that was the one that people connected in, uh, connected with, whereas in all these screenwriting workshops, would that character ever be created? Well it was created, Brendan Gleeson was going to tackle it and then Don Cheadle came in to play the American side of the mismatched Buddy Cops. When Cheadle came aboard, I mean he brought his production company as well. Then Element Films came in and Element Films managed to unlock uh, funding from the Irish Film Board which brought in another 40% of the budget. And after years of struggling, as John Michael Madonna explained, it all fell into place. Uh, Gleason and Don Cheadle I mean they, they, they spent some time together they went and spent a day and a half together in Los Angeles and they quickly built up some degree of mutual appreciation society there and then going back to that short film right at the start of it all Liam Cunningham and David Wilmot well they also agreed to take on supporting roles as the ensemble started to flesh out. Now, the, uh, the, the the piece of casting that I think, if anything, surprised the writer-director in this case was Mark Strong. Because the suggestion to even approach him came from the film's casting director. And at that point, Mark Strong's career was heading towards Hollywood. He was in demand for a whole bunch of bigger movies. And let's face it, in The Guard, he doesn't take one of the lead roles. He's got a really strong supporting role in it, but he's not, he's not Don Cheadle and he's not Brendan Gleeson. And so the screenplay went out to him anyway and it was a week later that Strong hadn't just read it but had agreed to sign up. Now, Madonna hadn't directed a feature before, and so this was important. And so he surrounded himself with people who knew what they were doing and who had the experience, who could fill in some of the gaps. And one of the crucial hires was Larry Smith as his director of photography, who would patiently explain to John Michael Madonna what he didn't know. And John Michael Madonna would happily lean into the expertise of Larry Smith. And there was a real, by the sounds of it, there was a really strong working relationship between the pair. And meanwhile the cast were happy as well. They did a table reading for it. Um, Brendan Gleeson said. I kind of felt I was very centred at the reading. He said culturally I understood. That kind of snarky persona of the character. But also he added that culturally too. I understood a lot of the stuff. But in terms of trying to get to the soul of him. I kind of had an idea. But there were options as well. And Gleeson's process isn't always. To do a great big deep dive. Into the backstory of the characters. That he brings to the screen. But. In this particular case, that's exactly what he did. He did put in a a, a lot of preparatory work just so he could take on this central role of Sergeant Jerry Boyle, which I would suggest remains one of his finest big screen roles. We get to the 29th of October 2009 and that was the date when production started on the guard. Now earlier that month we'd had the official announcement that the film was a thing. This was an independently funded movie so when an announcement for a film like this comes out you've not had months of casting rumours or anything. You just tend to get the whole lot in one go and that's exactly what happened. Filming would take place in the Galway area and Madonna knew the kind of film that he wanted to make. He was looking to make a big, widescreen, anamorphic-style shot movie that leaned into the idea of a Western that would lean on, uh, on bleak landscapes that would be very outdoors. And it was with the Western sort of in mind that the idea triggered in his head uh, while making the movie that where he wanted to go with the music. Because if you think in Westerns, you inevitably eventually bring your ears to the work of Ennio Morricone and his extraordinary work on Once Upon a Time in the West and the Spaghetti Western trilogy. Now, he wasn't going to hire Ennio Morricone for the film, but he did get in touch with Calexico, who was hired to do the music for the film. And Colexico's brief was lean into the style of Ennio Morricone. Could you put together a backing music for the guard that would have that kind of flavour? And it was very much a case of challenge accepted. Now, this was also a writer director who was shooting the shooting the movie. And Madonna would say we basically in the end shot a first draft. Uh, but what he didn't approach it as was a first low-budget small movie and he said, I didn't want it to feel like just a low-budget Irish film where they go, oh, it's a little gem. But Madonna would tell me, it's just, I hate little gems, I never go to see little gems, They're just sh- uh, sh- uh, they're just not very good movies, basically. But that wasn't what he wanted to do, and he had six weeks, primarily on location in and around Ireland, to to get his movie in the can, uh, re- replete with not always particularly nice weather. But he locked it down, and by the end of two thousand and nine, he completed production, was going into post production on it, and it looked like he had distribution in place as well. The now defunct Optimum Releasing was going to put the film out in the UK. There was interest from America in and around that point as well. But it was a matrix of production production companies who were behind Uh, the funding for the film, and they pretty much left him be during the shoot of the movie as well that he'd been able to go onto location. Uh, He was spending about $6 million on the film. It wasn't the most expensive film. It was just enough off-radar and there were just enough cooks involved that he did get space to go off and shoot the film that he wanted. It was only when it got into the edit room that that's when the notes started to come in. In fact, he he would report that it got a little bit heavy in the edit when everyone's sending their notes in But he said, while we were shooting, no one ever gave me any trouble. It was quite a pleasant shoot. Now, he didn't, uh, incidentally, approach his brother at any point. He'd tell to SBS uh, for any tips on directing. But it was in the final editing stage where he did lean on Martin Madonna just a little bit. And Madonna came in, Martin Madonna came in and gave his brother some notes on the film. And John Michael Madonna said, I agreed with about 70% of them. It's still very much going to be his film. The movie was then accepted into the Sundance Film Festival in 2011 and the path of an independent movie to the screen tends to take quite a long time. I mean, I imagine lots of you know this, but uh, just because you finished a film, you may still have to wait a year for it to do a festival circuit and then hope that people buy it and want to put it in cinemas. There's no guarantee of that, particularly now. Um, and now it'd be streaming services that would be feasting over the more interesting titles because they've got the checkbooks to do it. In the case of The Guard, what really helped ignite it was that Sundance movie, uh, that that Sundance Film Festival premiere, where it pretty much brought the house down. The reviews that came in were were really, really, really strong. Um, particularly just the humor of it, just how funny the film was. I mean, ironically that John Michael Madonna had layered lots of things into this and was talking originally about people were looking at it as funding a broad comedy. And it was the comedy that came through first in a lot of the writing of the film. But then people saw what he was doing underneath as well. And gradually, 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 the black comedy that he would put together was, was getting really, really strong notices to the point where it was, it was snapping up attention from around the world. And it was clear it was going to end up with some degree of strong theatrical release. Now, the film would land in cinemas. It would still take a little bit of time. It didn't land in Ireland until the 7th of July 2011. That's nearly six months after it debuted at the Sundance Film Festival. And then had to wait a little bit longer for it to reach UK cinemas as well. It would pop up on the schedule on the 13th of August 2011. And I mean, it's interesting, the quotes on the posters talk about it's a comedy when really, again, there's a little bit more to it than that. I say that as someone who absolutely adores comedies. And in fact, John Michael Madonna wouldn't be particularly pleased in particular with how the film was sold in the UK. Um, I did ask him about this and he said I I was not happy with the way The Guard was sold in the UK. See, I told you. He said it was a lacklustre campaign by people who didn't believe in the movie. And as he was heading into his next film, he argued that it turned out they were wrong and I was right. And he described it as a lesson learned. And I I mean, it didn't do terrible box office in the UK, but there was clearly a lot more that it could have done. And I I mean, I record this from uh, from the middle of Britain and it's just not that well known a film and it should be it sits on Netflix at the time this has been recorded and it's a 93 minute delay and, and John Michael Madonna just said I thought it would do better in the UK and he, was, he told The Guardian we were told Irish films didn't usually play well in the UK which is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy but it is a bit odd when your film does better in Germany and the thing was the film did well Around the world, and it would also have legs around the world. That by the time I, I mean, jumping almost to the end of the story, that it grossed about twenty million dollars worldwide by the time it was complete. But it was playing to it was playing primarily in independent and art house venues, and was playing there for a long time. I mean, it did get a, a US release. Sony Pictures Classics picked it up in the US and released it in July of 2011. Uh, its opening weekend, it opened it on four screens. Where it, it, I mean, it, It sat in 41st place in the chart but with an astonishing screen average of $19,000 a screen which was as good as anything in the chart that week with the exception of the film The Devil's Double which was also trying to slowly build an audience. Now, The Guard never massively troubled uh, the top 10. Uh, it wasn't getting anywhere near that scale of film. But the interesting thing about its U- US release uh, in particular is it just hung around and it peaked. I mean, it peaked at about 21st place, which took about four or five weeks of release to get there. And if we look at the bo- that box office chart that week, August the 19th the 21st. I, I mean it sat in 21st place, playing on, what, 83 screens still, still a huge screen average, and it's a, a gross $400,000 that weekend. The top movie that weekend was The Help, on its second week of release with $20 million. The new releases that were around it were Spy Kids 4, colon, all the time in the world. Conan the Barbarian, good God, uh, that's the remake, not the original. Uh, the remake of Fright Night was that week as well one day which at one point was a highly regarded book adaptation that didn't quite work out how people thought but the 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 guard played for nearly half a year in american cinemas it was it was there in and around you you would find it on some screen right the way through well into 2012 and part of the reason for that was it got a little bit of an awards run as well that as much as the golden globes are generally regarded as a, a not particularly uh, interesting or important award show, particularly now is that the fact that I mean the fact that they put forward Brendan Gleason for be- a best supporting actor. Nomina- uh, acting nomination. That was really something. And there was a little bit of a whisper would it get an Oscar run off the back of that? Which didn't happen. But still, in America, The Guard had hung around, it had got a degree of awards attention, and it was making enough that it would quickly unlock the next film that John Michael Madonna wanted to make. Because he talked fairly quickly about the idea of a trilogy of films, uh, loose, a loose trilogy of films with Brendan Gleason involved, of which he's made two so far. Now the one that he would come to immediately after the guard was the film Calvary, uh, which Gleason took the lead in, which arguably is his best film. It's another terrific movie. He'd also got in his head at that point the film that would be his third feature, War on Everyone, and he had the guts of that in place and knew what he wanted to do. Um, But it was the guard that, in the end, turned out to be its calling card—a film that came out of the ashes in his head, at least, of a very unsatisfactory experience screenwriting for uh, for his first big movie but from the from his experience on Ned Kelly he put together this film The Guard and if you've not seen it I do recommend I do really recommend seek this one out check it out it is an absolute treat and while we wait for the third part of the trilogy and more recently Madonna has been making The Forgiven which has had Ray Fiennes in it Uh, but while we wait for his next collaboration in Brendan Gleeson there's no better time to go back just have another look or a first look at The Guard. and that brings me to the halfway point of this latest episode of film stories as always thank you for listening and thank you for your time uh, a couple of parish notices before we go to gotham city for the second of the two films i'm talking about um if you like this podcast there are three ways you can support it and i'm grateful for any stroke all of these that you choose to do um on the one hand it, i mean if you want to financially support what we're trying to do with film stories which involves giving people opportunity to write about film when they've not had that opportunity before and paying them for it and also just paying for helping to contribute to the cost of paying for all the resources that go into making the podcast Well, if you head to patreon.com slash simon brew and pop a few coins in the pot there uh, in exchange you get the podcast early pretty much every week you certainly find out what we're up to behind the scenes ahead of pretty much everyone else as well and you get this podcast ad free as well Um, and uh, you know, I, I just hugely appreciate all the people who supported me there. Uh, meanwhile, costing you absolutely nothing is if you could subscribe to this podcast at your podcast home of choice. That would just be wonderful and, and much appreciated. And likewise, if you wouldn't mind leaving a hugely positive review somewhere, stuff like that for independent podcasts is, is massively, massively appreciated. Um, elsewhere, I've got live shows coming up uh, at the point this has been recorded. Uh, I'm a few days away from going to Stockport in the UK for the first time. I'm going to the Brilliant Light Cinema on the 3rd of May 2023. I'm then heading back to London on June the 1st, 2023. Tickets for that aren't quite on sale at the point I'm recording this. Hopefully they are by the time it's released. Either way, you can find all details of my upcoming live shows at filmstories.co.uk and just tap on the live events tab at the top, and that's where you can find all the ticket details there. Uh, we're also hard at work on our print magazines. You can find more on those at store.filmstories.co.uk, but I bet I remember to plug those at the end as well. Because now I'm going to move on to the second of the two films I'm talking about in this episode of Film Stories, and it's a big one. Um let me set it up with a clip from the movie, and we'll come to the story. The other side of this. Death was not your fault. My parents deserve justice. I cannot let that pass. If you make yourself more than just a man, then you become something else entirely. What is yes. A legend, Mr. Wayne. Master Wayne, are you coming back for long, sir? As long as it takes to show the people of Gotham their city doesn't belong to the criminals and the corrupt. Bruce? Rachel? You have gone a long time. I yeah. know. Things are worse than ever down here. What chance does Gotham have when the good people do nothing? Well, it's not a bad question. I've got no intention of answering. Instead, I'm going to dig into the story of 2005's Batman Begins, directed by Christopher Nolan, screenplay by Nolan and David S. Goya, Story credit went to Goya, and starring Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Liam Neeson, Katie Holmes, Gary Oldman, Killian Murphy, Tom Wilkinson, Rutger Hauer, Ken Watanabe and Morgan Freeman. And, well, the story starts as the Batman saga fell into something of a graveyard towards the end of the 1990s. It is not a massive spoiler, I don't think, to suggest that 1997's movie Batman and Robin, directed by Joel Schumacher with George Clooney as Batman did not go down particularly well. It had the impact of a very smelly uh, passing of wind in a very small vehicle, I would suggest. And it left Warner Brothers in a bit of a quandary, because it had planned a fifth live-action Batman film at that point. uh, Batman Triumphant was one possible title. Joel Schumacher was going to return to direct that once he'd gone off to do the John Grisham adaptation, The Runaway Jury. But when Batman and Robin, which wasn't a flop but was a massive disappointment, didn't bring home the expected numbers at the box office, Schumacher backed away both from the Grisham film and from another Batman movie. And that left Batman in some degree of stasis. And so you get to 1999 and Warner Brothers had nothing in the locker for what had been one of its biggest franchises of the 1990s, if not its biggest franchise. So the turning point was the appointment of a man called Alan Horn in 1999 to the role of president and COO of Warner Brothers. Now, Horn quickly realised and he would go on eventually to apply this to Disney as well, being at the helm of its meteoric rise at the box office in the 2010s. Horn realized that franchises were the way forward for Warner Brothers, that what it actually wanted strategically was fewer movies but bigger movies. It takes as much effort to market and release a $10 million movie as it does a $100 million movie. You've got a greater chance of profit at, block, uh, uh, at the scale Warner Brothers was oper- operating at least if you make a $100, $100 million movie. And so he was looking for franchises and so he quickly got sequels to The Matrix going. The Harry Potter saga sprung up under his watch as well. But two of Warner Brothers' biggest assets on its asset register were dormant at the time that Horner took took charge. One was Batman, one was Superman. And, I mean, as Jeff Robanoff, who was brought in as head of, of president production at Warner Brothers, would tell Entertainment Weekly there were no scripts in development, there was nothing happening, and we had to proceed carefully. And so it got to work. And from 1999 to 2002, Warner Brothers was active in trying to sort its Batman problem out. And a whole bunch of people came in with pitches. Joss Whedon came in with one to do an origin story towards the end of 2002. But ahead of that, one of the most high profile projects that never happened was from Darren Aronofsky. Now, Aronofsky, at this point, independent filmmaker, fast upcoming off the back of *Pi* and then *Requiem* for a uh, *Requiem* for a Dream. Well, he was in, he was in a position to take Batman off in a completely different direction, and the thing with this was the, the failure of Batman and Robin. And the very cartoony High Camp styling of it had opened Warner Brothers eyes to the fact that you have to go in a completely different way. That Batman and Robin had been a film where the the toy manufacturers had had an input, where the the tie in meal manufacturers had had an input. And so it wanted something that went a bit more, well, down to earth, really. And here was a chance for a filmmaker to stamp a footprint on a franchise that Warner Brothers really needed to, to reignite. And so Darren Aronofsky was invited in and he would unite with Frank Miller to look to adapt the classic comic book book, uh, classic comic book that Miller had put together, Batman Year One for the screen. Now, Year One would eventually arrive as an animated movie in the 2010s. But for a while, this was going to be the reboot of Batman on the big screen. And it couldn't have been more different from what Joel Schumacher had put had been putting into his films, a, a, a Batman who was very raw in his year one of being Batman. What made him Batman? How was he? How was he operating in and around Gotham City? Also, this was going to be R-rated for a while as well. And Miller and Aronofsky developed it, and for a while it really looked like it might happen. The script was written. Aronofsky got to the point where he was considering either Christian Bale or Whakyin Phoenix to play the role of Batman, but. In 2002, well, the project was ultimately abandoned because there was another plan moving as well. Because Andrew Kevin Walker, who'd penned Seven, came in to do a script for a Batman versus Superman movie. And Andrew Kevin Walker's screenplay would then be polished by Kiva Goldsman, the Oscar winning screenwriter of Batman and Robin, although he didn't win his Oscar for Batman and Robin. And so he was looking at developing a a, a union of Batman and Superman that would solve two of Warner Brothers' problems in one go if it all went to plan... Now, J.J. Abrams, he was in the mix at this point, working on a Superman project as well. And there were a mix of opportunities here for the studio. And it got to the point where it was make your mind up time. And on the eve of the release of Batman Begins, Entertainment Weekly magazine did did a great big, huge behind the scenes piece on it. And it talked about Alan Horn bringing together a panel to decide which of the projects to go for. Do you take the J.J. Abrams approach? um, And uh, uh, I mean, at this point, that was getting a little bit down the road. Wolfgang Peterson, meanwhile, well, he was putting together Batman versus Superman. Colin Farrell could have been Batman. Jude Law could have been Superman. But Horn brought together a panel of ten people from the creative side of the business, the marketing side of the business, and yep, the merchandising side of the business, to basically work out which horse you're going to back. And they opted in the direction of J.J. Abrams. Now Abrams, at this point, had been a screenwriter. He got films to the screen. I mean, Regarding Henry was written by him once upon a time Um, but also it was on the small screen where he was earning his success at that stage he was being courted by Hollywood to direct a movie it'd be Mission Impossible 3 that would finally tempt him to do so but Abrams was developing a Superman project that in the end that it fell apart too and so it had had these three front runners a batman versus superman a batman year one and whatever abrahams was concocting at that point and they'd all just in the end come to nothing for a variety of different reasons and that was said to be one of the reasons why Warner brothers very quickly greenlit a catwoman spin-off movie that would star Halle berry in the title role and let's just say that one didn't go down very well At all, I will come to that in a future episode of this podcast. But that took the slot and took the resources that Batman versus Superman at one stage was going to take. And so we have Batman remaining in stasis in 2002. Warner Brothers still talking to people, but it had put a couple of years into trying to move the project forward and nothing, nothing to show for it. So enter a man called Christopher Nolan. Then in his 30s, he'd just finished his first studio film. I mean, he'd come to prominence off the thriller Memento starring Guy Pearce. But for Warner Brothers, he'd just made a remake of Insomnia, which had really delivered it. It had been regarded as punching above its weight. The reviews for it were good. The box office was good. And Nolan was hard at work on what would have been his next project. He was looking to do a biopic of the legendary Howard Hughes next. And he'd nearly finished the script. Wouldn't you know it, though? Just as he was tying up his screenplay, it became clear that he wasn't the only person in town trying to tell the Howard Hughes story. And the problem was, he was up against Martin Scorsese because it became clear that Scorsese was now going to tackle Howard Hughes with his film that would become The Aviator. And that left Nolan just pretty much without (laughs) without a chair as the music was about to stop, really. He'd lost a dream project that he was looking to do. And so in the midst of all of this, Warner Brothers was taking pitches for its Batman film and Nolan took a meeting. He'd had a success for Warner Brothers. Why wouldn't he go in? So he duly did. Now, he wasn't a massive Batman nerd or anything like that. But he liked the idea of something really grounded, something real-world that played into the twisted psychology of the duality of the Bruce Wayne and Batman character. As Nolan reasoned to Entertainment Weekly, I mean, he's just a regular guy who does a lot of press-ups. He makes himself extraordinary through sheer force of will. Why would he do that? Well, that's where his story was going to be centered. And Robanov talked about remembering the pitch he just said. Nolan pitched the idea. We fell in love with it. And they acknowledge. Warner Brothers knew that Nolan hadn't directed a big blockbuster film. He was inexperienced. He'd only got a couple of movies under his belt. Um, but... It, I mean, they had confidence in him. Also, I always wonder if they thought they were hiring by hiring someone less experienced, it would have made them a bit more controllable. I wonder if that was in Warner Brothers' mind. But then it was Christopher Nolan and Christopher Nolan over time would become Christopher Nolan. And so controllable. Well, happy to work within a studio, but a filmmaker who very much knows what he wants to do. Now, Nolan got the job, and news of this broke in January 2003, and, you know, it was clear another Batman film was finally going to happen. But Nolan knew he needed a Batman geek on his team, and so he put in a call to writer David S. Goya, who'd uh, penned the first two Blade movies and had success with that, and they had a chat. Now, Goya, an absolute hardcore Batman nerd, and he talked about how they had to look to position a film in what he described as the only blank space in the Bat mythology. Because, I mean, we'd seen how what, what inspired Bruce Wayne to become Batman. We'd seen the death of his parents. We'd seen him fight crime. But Goya spotted that what we hadn't seen is the bit where Bruce Wayne trains to become Batman. That little bit of mid-story that a lot of the, certainly screen work to do with Batman, had ignored. So Nolan was intrigued by this. But also Goya had a commitment to direct Blade Trinity at that point. The third of the Blade movies that he was going to step behind the camera for. And so he turned the Batman project down. But a week later he changed his mind. I mean he just couldn't resist the idea of doing this. And he was back in. And so what happened then is Nolan and Goya decamped to the DC Comics office in New York City. And they would sit in that office and... They would go over old comic books. They would quiz uh, the DC Comics staff. Uh, DC staff were pushing back on things that Nolan and Goya were asking about. And basically they had this 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 archive of material, both human and print, that they could look into to determine where they were going with Batman. So by the autumn of 2003, development was ongoing and Nolan had moved back to London. He bought his old childhood house to live in. And as he was walking around, he kept thinking of his childhood, the things, the films that mattered to him as a child. The films like Star Wars, The James Bond Adventure, The Spy Who Loved Me, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he was very much of the view that's the kind of thing he wanted to capture. They also deliberately wrote and put together this film in a big way. They knew that this Batman was going to go all over the world. And Goya delivered a script that was described as ambitious that took Bruce Wayne from his early training to what made him Batman. And also it honed in on a character of the Scarecrow as the villain, which is someone that Joel Schumacher was looking to explore. Had he taken on a future Batman installment as well? Nolan then worked with Goya on shaping the script and he would describe to Tom Sean uh, in his book The Nolan Variations that a lot of my Howard Hughes script went into Batman Begins in the end. And also the idea of the Bond films of of which Nolan's a huge fan. He just wanted it to have that size. He said we really wanted to give it a more Bond-like global footprint. These movies were our guiding light in terms of how the geography of a film can enhance the feeling of scale, he reasoned. There was also, uh, tapping into the James Bond influence, a clear influence of Ian Fleming from the gadgets Bob Kane, the creator of Batman, had given Batman. And we felt we could repay the favour by having a Q-like figure in our film in the character of Lucius Fox. And so it was these influences, along with a lot of other 70s and 80s blockbusters that Nolan had grown up with that opened up the way he was going to approach Batman. Now Nolan also hadn't worked within the apparatus of a studio on a big blockbuster movie before and he just saw a lot of wastage in that, that a script would be delivered and then another department would go off and design everything and some designs would be rejected and just junked and there would be a lot of toing and fro and he really wasn't having a lot of shrift with that. And instead, what he did was he brought in production designer Nathan Crowley and invited him into his garage. Now, that sounds like a horror film, doesn't it? But Crowley was able to set up a workshop in Nolan's garage. Let's assume it wasn't on the small side. And at the while the script was being written, Nathan Crowley was in the garage designing elements of the film. He was designing the Batmobile, for instance, that we would see in the final movie. And it was a case that Nolan and Goya were inside the house, They would go and talk to Crowley about how they were envisaging certain parts of the film, about the vehicle, about the architecture. Crowley would put his designs together. And the the whole process of building the design and building the script took place in tandem, rather than, as is often traditional, one is complete and then you move on to the other side. But Nolan knew what he wanted to do. It was almost presenting it as a fait accompli. I'm going to give you the script and I'm going to give you the design. I'm going to give you one decision to make here. You can sign off on the lot of it. And so, I mean, it sounds so sinister when I say this, but Christopher Nolan invited the executives from Warner Brothers to his garage to have a look at the work. And he described they were not happy about it, but Warners had had a lot of trouble with scripts leaking. And Nolan didn't want this script leaking. He was quite secretive of it. And Nolan describes this in the, what, 2003, 2004, at the beginning of this online frenzy from a passionate fan base about what should or shouldn't be done in the movies. And Nolan remembered it. It had happened to a script of a Superman film, I think, that the fans had somehow got a hold of the script and it would literally make a project untenable. And so the Warner Brothers executives had to go to Nolan's home, not just to see the script, but also to see the designs that would that Nolan was intending to bring to life as part and parcel of making his film. It was enough to get it greenlit. And it got it greenlit with the condition that this was going to be a PG-13 rated movie. The idea of doing an R-rated Batman film, that was now out the window. But Nolan was cool with this because Nolan wanted the kind of film he would have wanted to watch as a kid. That he rationalised this wasn't going to be a film for five-year-olds, but 11, 12-year-olds. It's the kind of film that he wanted them to really enjoy in the way he would have done once upon a time at that age as well. Now, there was a problem as things were ongoing that the script did indeed leak onto the internet and it was devoured by Batman fans and Warner Brothers suddenly had a wobble and held its breath. But what it perhaps wasn't expecting was how well that script went down because it was devoured, it was read and the response was euphoric towards it. So much so that the, the thread coming through a lot of the comments on that screenplay were there no way that Warner Brothers would ever let Christopher Nolan make a Batman movie like this. Warner Brothers the company that, that, that you know, helped push Tim Burton towards the exit door on Batman and brought Joel Schumacher in to lighten the tone. Would it really take such a massive gamble and go almost back to square one and allow Christopher Nolan again a relatively inexperienced filmmaker at this stage in his career do this to Batman well yes is the answer yes and that threaded through to the casting and the way that Nolan wanted to put his ensemble together. Because one of his great touch points was the way Richard Donner had put together the original Superman film. And he talked to Richard Donner a lot. In fact, there's a, a terrific on-stage interview between the pair that you can find on YouTube. But the thing that uh, he got from Donner in particular was the idea of you cast your movie really well that you go right down the call sheet, right down the casting list, and you make sure you have really, really good actors in each role. Almost movie stars in each role. But you couldn't get to that point until you'd sorted the Batman problem out. And Batman wasn't going to be a movie star. That I mean, Nolan was was just homing in on Christian Bale. And the problem there was, and he saw quite a few people for the role, he saw Killian Murphy for the role of Batman, but the problem was Christian Bale had just been making a film called The Machinist. And as part of his preparation for The Machinist, Bale had lost a lot of weight, like a lot of weight. He was fra- A picture leaked online ahead of the release of that film and Bale looks almost skeletal in it. And the whole idea of Batman is that this is a superhero who's trained himself, who is beefed up, who can handle himself in a fight against 74 people in one go, just with the help of some gadgets. Bluntly, Bale walked in and looked absolutely nothing like a superhero when he met Christopher Nolan. And also, he was just honest. He told Christopher Nolan he had no interest in doing the kind of Batman film that had been done before. He couldn't do a Val, well, he could, but he didn't want to do a Val Kilmer or a George Clooney or a Michael Keaton. He, if, if that was the approach he was taking, it would be a polite no thanks. But, of course, as you know, it wasn't. And what Nolan was looking for was the kind of intensity that Christian Bale would bring. The, the, the whole idea of this is the person who drags himself up to be a superhero. And he saw it in Bale. Um, and the role was duly offered. And Bale signed up. Now... Then it came down to sorting all of the other roles out. And I mean, there's a lovely story of how uh, he'd never worked with Michael Caine at this point, And Michael Caine has been in every Christopher Nolan film since. But he turned up at Michael Caine's house with a script asking him to read for the role of Alfred. And Caine describes this as he came to the door he said, my name's Chris Nolan. I've got a script for you. And Caine asked him, what, what role did you have in mind? He's just like, I want you to play the butler. And Kane said, "What do I say? Dinner is served." And it's just like, no, the butler is going to be Bruce Wayne's stepfather. And so Kane said, "I'll read it and get back to you." And no, not acceptable. <laughs> Nolan just said, "I need you to read it now. Is that okay?" And it was. So what happened is Michael Kane showed Christopher Nolan to his living room, gave him some tea. Apparently, Christopher Nolan loves his tea, and he sat and sipped tea while in the other room, Michael Kane read it. Read it. Really liked it, and said yes. And in, I mean, in his own writing, Kane has said how he explored giving the character of Alfred a big backstory, just so he could come to it and know that this wasn't just some two-dimensional support character. He had to be there for a reason. And so, right the way down that ensemble list, uh, Nolan was putting in offers to people and and people of real stature, and they were saying yes. I mean, Killian Murphy was offered the role of the Scarecrow. He'd he'd auditioned for Batman and said yes. But also, just look down the list. Morgan Freeman as Lucius Lucius Fox, Ken Watanabe, Gary Oldman, Liam Neeson, Katie Holmes. There was no shortchanging. There was no filling in roles with, uh, with all due respect, lesser known actors on this. It was named actors in each role, just as Richard Donner had managed to do for the bulk of Superman the movie. Now, while Nolan was doing all this, I mean, the pre-production work by this point, uh, as we head to the end of 2003, early 2004, was well underway, and in fact, there was a top-secret costume effects workshop set up at Shepperton Studios that was going by the name of Cape Town, and this was the place where the top-secret new bat suit was going to be developed. It had 24-hour security. It was a controlled compound described in the press notes as comprised of a whole village of cabins that contained administration office, a canteen, all the technical workshops, the sculpt room, dye and laundry, spray room, cutting and sewing room, the art finishing room, the mould shop, the foam lab and up to 40 people were working on the bat suits at the height of the workshop's work, all under the watchful eye of a round-the-clock security team. Bale was meanwhile deep into training. It wouldn't take him that long. I think it only took him about two months to get his bulk back. But he was sculpted and moulded for his batsuit months ahead of the start of filming. And meanwhile, all that stuff that was built in Christopher Nolan's garage, well, that was now that that was now the basis for the sets that were being built and the locations that were being sought. That Warner Brothers had bought into the idea of here's the script and here are the designs, and work could get underway on putting all that together. Now that didn't mean that it all started shooting on these on these sets that were being built. Instead, when filming began on, in March of 2004, off they went to Southeast Iceland to the biggest glacier in Europe. And <laughs> as they described, we were really fortunate to find the location where we could look one way and see ocean, and then we turned 180 degrees. It looked like we were standing at 20,000 feet. This was a physical challenge to film somewhere quite so remote. I mean, notwithstanding the 75 mile per hour winds that were blowing people off their feet, Nolan kept shooting. Notwithstanding the fact that the ice was cracking, Nolan kept shooting. There was a small matter of the fact they couldn't actually get their equipment there. There wasn't the transportation links needed to do so. And so even before they could rock up and start shooting a Batman movie, they had to build a road uh, in order to be able simply to get there. Now, there's a thing in movie making called the 100 Day Club and you hear it a lot less now than you once did that computer technology has managed to scale this right down. But what the 100 Day Club is, is the scale of movie that shoots for 100 days or more. I've got an upcoming podcast episode with producer Barbara Defina, for instance, and she talks about producing Casino, a member of the 100 Day Club. Batman Begins was going to shoot for 129 days. And even though computer technology wasn't quite shaving it down that much uh, in the mid 2000s, that was still a weighty amount of time for a physical production on a big superhero movie. Now, to, Nolan would bring the film in on time and on budget, so that wasn't the problem at all. Instead, the reason it was going to shoot for 129 days is Nolan wasn't cutting the corners anywhere. And uh, uh, pri- as he's not done throughout his career, he was refusing to use a second unit to capture the inserts, to capture all of the other like side shots that ordinarily would be handed off for a second unit to do now lots of films have successfully used second units so it's no snobbery about them but Nolan wanted to make sure and control that absolutely everything was in the same tone was in the same style and he was going to capture all of the footage himself working with his director of photography Wally Pfister They worked 12 hour days. They weren't working stupid hours for the most part. They would break for lunch. It was a controlled, organised set, a difficult one and a very physical one. And one also that took them around the world. That Gotham City this time will primarily be based on the city of Chicago, but they would also use footage shot in London and New York for it. Nolan was also dialing back on CG visual effects as much as humanly possible. He wanted to go back to that ethos of that Superman film where miniatures work were used, where physical work was done, where the stunts were in camera. And it didn't mean that there's not CG CG work in Batman Begins. There clearly is. Um, Ironically, the bats are CG created because they just kind of figured it's going to take so long to train the bats and we won't be able to control them. So you may as well put those in in post-production with, uh, with visual effects but as much as possible was built so a- another part of gotham city was created at a british air base that was disused that was set about 30 40 miles north of london this was raf cardington and one of the things about cardington was the two gigantic hangars that were used ahead of world war ii to house a pair of massive airships And what it meant was there was this huge amount of space and the larger of the two hangars at RAF Cardington was duly transformed into Gotham City for large parts of the production of Batman Begins. Now Cardington couldn't hold all of the physical production and all of the stage work that was needed for the film, so the Bat Cave would be set up at Shepperton Studios. This was built 250 feet long. It would have 24 water pumps on the go that would be powering the 12,000 gallons of water that were running through the Bat Cave. It was an accurate recreation of that model. It's really, I mean, it's really important to get that across. And as Wally Fister just said, my eyes popped out of my head when I saw the Bat Cave model, and I realised we were going to have to pull a few tricks to light it but he said I think we really achieved the look of a real cave with this wonderful glistening rock all the throughout because what Nolan and what Crowley didn't want was this perfectly constructed back cave they wanted it to be rough and ready the whole thing is just like held together with sellotape that kind of feel to it Now, Nolan would admit during the shooting of the film that the biggest challenge was making sure they kept capturing the scope and scale of a Batman movie. They knew this was a big story on a big canvas, and they knew that's what they were going for. They knew that's what they needed. It also was reflected in the music as well, because, I mean, filming wrapped up in September 2014, but Nolan had been chatting to composer Hans Zimmer about an unusual collaboration for the score for Batman Begins. Now, the collaboration's unusual element came from Zimmer himself. That Zimmer was approached to do the score, but in turn, he asked Nolan if he could also bring in another composer, James Newton Howard, to handle different parts of it. And they would have a joint score effectively where different composers handled different parts and then it was joined together really the pair working in tandem for three months able to visit the sets that were built as well because they were organized they were getting the music done early And the whole thing was able to wrap up in September of 2004. And at that point, Warner Brothers was planning its June 2005 release for the film. Now, the challenge that Warner Brothers was facing is Batman had been off the big screen for eight years. And the the people who remembered the the last Batman films, well, they're not going to be massively encouraged to come back. And for everyone else, you're going to have to be reintroduced to the idea of Batman's going to be a massive movie. And so it was spring 2004 that the first picture of Christian Bale in the Batsuit was released. The film was still shooting at that point, but because they were doing bits of location work, they knew that that would come out. The first trailer came out and, and it, I mean, it just suddenly felt like something had turned. Fandom was very much on the side of the film. I mean, they'd been making the right noises right throughout the making of it and during the pre-production as well. Fans were, were engaged with it and there was a real sense that lessons had been learnt. And so, I mean, the big the big test would be putting it before an audience. The world premiere was set for Japan in May of 2005. Nolan was able to edit the film that he wanted to make. Lee Smith came in to do his editing on it. But would it work? Would it work? Could they possibly win this gamble? Now, you know the answer to it is yes. Although Batman Begins wasn't as massive a hit as as you might expect... However, it went before critics and the reviews, they weren't ecstatic, but they were strong. I mean, there was a. There, I mean, there was very much the appreciation that lessons had been learnt after the last Batman film, and that this was a significant improvement. There was also, I mean, Christian Bale came in for praise. Not all of the cast came in for praise, but on the whole, the ensemble had held up well. There were little bits of it that seemed to serve blockbuster cinema rather than the the, the what the film was doing in the first two hours, for instance, but. There was a sense that this was really something quite special and I remember going to see Batman Begins with no expectation whatsoever it's worth noting as well that uh, Nolan was using IMAX on this for the first time as well although he would use it properly on the follow-up but there were uh, there was an IMAX release for Batman Begins and it looked glorious but I remember going to see the film and just uh, I mean just being pinned to my seat I went in expecting not an awful lot I'd avoided all of the promotion and by the time the end of Batman Begins teases the next. movie i was all for just rounding up all the creatives chucking them in a room and telling them not to come out until they've made the next film however would audiences respond well yes they would and batman begins opened in first place at the box office in the u.s on june the 17th to the 19th of 2005 with a 48 million dollar opening weekend now that's good That's good, but when you consider that in 1992 Batman Returns had opened with that kind of number, it's not quite where Warner Brothers would have wanted it to land. Batman Returns had earned £45 on its opening weekend. Here was Batman Begins, an improvement on Batman and Robin... But not the runaway success the studio would have hoped. Now, there was competition. It was high summer. Star Wars Episode 3 had been out a month before. And that was still in the top five. Had it made its way to $350 million in the US alone. The only, the only studio opener against Batman Begins was just a bit of counter-programming. The film The Perfect Man opened and didn't do an awful lot of business for Universal with 5 million. But Mr and Mrs Smith had turned up the week before. That had done 26 million on its second weekend in second place. And Batman Begins was in a summer that was fierce competition and, and slightly underperforming. Now, the signs that Warner Brothers had something, though, were the following week where it lost only 43% of its audience. Now, that sounds like a high number, but for a comic book movie, that's not bad. And another $27 million uh, banked. War of the Worlds turned up the following week. Tom Cruise, Steven Spielberg collaboration. That was a much bigger opener, $65 million that opened to. But Batman Begins still holding, as it would hold for most of the summer. And by the time, I mean, you go forward to, I mean, let's just jump forward to the end of July 2005. And only then has Batman Begins dropped out of the top 10 for the first time. By that stage, it grossed $205 million in the US, $166 million overseas, for a total gross of $371 million worldwide. Now, again, not great money. The budget for the film had been $150 million. So it wasn't coming in at making like an, an absolute ton of cash but compared to where warner brothers had come from it was a massive upgrade on batman and robin it wasn't the studio's biggest film of the year that would be harry potter and the goblet of fire and also uh the tim burton directed uh take charlie and the chocolate factory but respectable enough for Warner Brothers to unlock the idea of the next film which all concerned had been very very quiet about during the filming of, that there were movies that were happening around this time where it was fairly open, they were working on the second film even as the first film was being made nothing like that in the world of Christopher Nolan and Batman and in fact it would take, th- it would take three years at a point where most sequels are coming two years afterwards, it would take three years before we would see Christian Bale as Batman and Bruce Wayne Back on the big screen again, the template that Batman Begins would set uh, the whole dark and gritty reboot would be doubled down on by the James Bond movie Casino Royale the, the the year after, and that would really spark the dark and gritty approach that blockbuster cinema went through for the following decade. It would take quite a while for it to lighten up. Few did it better, I would suggest, than Batman Begins, which remained, I think, on 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 measure just for the impact of it had when I watched it for the first time. It's probably my favourite Batman film. But it's also the film that established Christopher Nolan really as almost an auteurish blockbuster filmmaker. Those things don't always go together. But here we had someone who could make intelligent, grown up movies that would have a wide appeal and also would be able to make a Batman film that didn't have nipples on the suit as well. And that brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories. I will come back to Nolan's other Batman movies in a future episode of Film Stories. Um, If I've not bored you completely for now, you can find more from me on Twitter at Simon Brew. You can get more from the entire Film Stories project at Film Stories we're at Facebook at facebook.com slash film stories online or on YouTube youtube.com slash film stories if you head to our website filmstories.co.uk that's updated every weekday with movie news and movie reviews and movie features if you go to store.filmstories.co.uk meanwhile that's where you can find all the magazines the print magazines that we do we do film stories magazine we do film junior magazine we also have a blu-ray we sell here in the UK of the wonderful film sneakers that we made some extras for as well but I think that's enough waffle from me i Outstaying my welcome as always. It just remains for me to say a couple of things. Firstly, a huge thanks to the Publishers Podcast Awards who this week rec- uh, recognise this podcast as best entertainment podcast of the year. I'm I really taken aback by that, and I can't thank everyone enough who's supporting me to get to this point. But the most important thing is that you all stay safe and well. And I will be back soon with another bunch of film stories. I've got special episodes coming your way soon with Barbara Dafina. I've got a special episode coming your way with James L. Brooks. But I've got your regular episode as well. So I better go off and watch a few more films. You all take care. The best to you all. Bye bye.